Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, I am so excited to have Dr. Trumpong Hu with us. Trumpong is currently a faculty member of the School of Psychology at Nanjing Normal University in China. His research interests include social cognition, SES and poverty, and reproducibility. He is also one of the founding members of the Chinese Open Science Network, a grassroots network for promoting awareness of reproducibility and open science in China. In this episode, Trumbo shared his journey and the lessons learned through promoting open science in China from scratch. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I am very excited to talk to you. It's kind of surreal to me that I was born and raised in China, yet I rarely speak to any scholar in psychology who is working in China. I mean, there are a lot of amazing international Chinese scholars, but they are mostly affiliated with the U.S. institutes. And the topic today almost has been the background of my training here at Stanford Open Science. And I think I got to know you through one of the events that the Chinese Open Science Network organized. So I know you and your team have been working on this paper to describe Chinese Open Science Network for a while. So how about we start here? What is Chinese Open Science Network? Chinese Open Science Network uh, is a grassroots network or an online community that aims at promoting open science practices and uh, raising awareness of rigor, transparent and uh, reproducible science in China. And uh, our steering committee are all early career researchers. I see. How do you come to the decision of starting the Chinese Open Science Network? Because from my experience, it really seems to be almost like this the only one, only organization that I know of that's promoting open science in China at the moment. Yeah, uh, but actually I did not decide to uh, start a network at the very beginning. Instead, I was only trying to do what I can to spread the idea that were discussed in the English or international community. So, you know, during our graduate training, most of graduate students only focus on their own research topic, but not actually keep an eye on the trend of the whole field. So usually this approach is optimal, right? Because uh, then you can spend more time improving your research skills and reading more papers directly related to your own research. But around 2011, um, I think things start to change because um, there are several events happened and then social media become popular among psychologists and scientists in general. And people start to discuss those events very hotly online. Those things including the replication failure of the elderly priming study and the Staples fraud events and the BAM's extrasensory perception paper and also the famous paper, uh, False Positive Psychology by Simons and their colleagues. Mm-hmm. So I can sense that uh, the anxiety caused by the irreproducibility in the field and also the urge to change our practices as a whole. And then I, I saw many discussions on the internet and uh, 
research start to discuss how to address these issues. And in 2015, the Open Science Collaboration published the results of the replication results of 100 studies, which had a huge impact in, on the field, I think. And then people start to accept the fact that in the reproducibility crisis exists and the open science movement start to uh, gain more attention and somehow being approved by senior researchers. And uh, at the same time, I also saw a lot of uh, research standards and practices were changing and at a very fast pace. But at the same time, because at that time I still um, during my PhD in China, so I found a few Chinese colleagues talking about these events or the changing standards. I also have a strong feeling that we were left behind in terms of how to do better science. So um, together with a few colleagues in our lab at Tsinghua University, we decided to write a Chinese paper to let people, especially that the graduate students know what was happening in the international community. So we focus mm-hmm. on the replication crisis, the reasons behind the crisis, and the changing standards. So we hope that uh, by introducing the events, more students can look out their own field and start to adapt to the changing standards. When we were writing this paper, we are also very anxious because we're afraid no one in our field and no senior researchers talk about it in public. Um, mm-hmm. Why? That we, a group of graduate students, talk about this in public and uh, even write a paper about this. But unexpectedly, this paper was accepted and uh, one reviewer actually loved it and encouraged to publish it. So eventually it was published in 2016. Um, I think this is very encouraging because we found that some senior researchers, even they do not talk about it publicly, still they know it is important to pay attention to the change in the international community. Thank you so much for sharing this journey. I, I didn't know that this goes like that back in 2016. And it sounds like it's just like you and some like other buddies of yours in the lab that decided, okay, this is a cool thing and people should know it. And you just write a paper. Were there like any senior authors on the paper or it's just like literally you and your buddies? Just um, my colleagues, young colleagues in our lab, we wrote this paper, but we also put our supervisor as the author mm-hmm. to increase the authority of the paper. And our advisor, very kind, generous to support us. So in the end, uh, he is the, the senior author of the paper. I see, I see. And were there any like challenges when bring up this idea to your advisor? It sounds like your advisor was someone who was like very open to these ideas and like happy to discuss them with you. Yes, yes. My advisor Kai Ping is a very open person in general. Also, he knows the importance of scientific rigor in doing research. So he was very supportive. Um, actually, the challenge was from one of our reviewers who thought that we were too harsh to the old way of doing research. For example, one of the comments was that uh, the contribution of negative results to science is usually less important than that of positive results. And uh, the criticism to publication bias in this paper is unfair, and among other comments. So we have to tone down our paper in the end. Oh, interesting. So what happened? Once the paper is out, once people can read it, what happened? 
so when the paper was accepted, and we then proposed a pre-conference workshop at the annual meeting of the Chinese Society of Psychology, because we want to promote this paper and uh, let more people to know to read this paper, and also we hope to have some hands-on lecture to have in-person interaction with the researchers. And we also proposed this workshop with anxiety because we are just graduate students. We are not senior research in the field. Uh, but as the paper was accepted very smoothly, and uh, so we went to Xi'an uh, at the end of 2016, and uh, we started this workshop. And to promote this workshop, we also created a WeChat official account. We name it as Open Science. WeChat official account is like a blog, but uh, its content can be shared among the user's social network. Uh, it's different from like Twitter or Facebook. You can share the content publicly. In WeChat, you can only share your content among your own social network. But because WeChat is the most widely used social media app in China, so it is the default choice for us. Uh, in the end, uh, the workshop attracted more than 100 attendees, if I remember correctly. So it's quite hot. And uh, mm-hmm. I think one reason is that it's free. The other wo- workshops, or many other workshops, uh, you need to pay for it. I think the the workshop itself is well received. And uh, young researchers, many of them feedback to us that they feel they have the same confusing feeling when they are doing research. For example... They have to torture the data again and again to get significant results. As a young researchers, they also feel confused. Why should we do that? So mm-hmm. many of the graduate students gave us quite positive feedback. So after the workshop, we want to keep in touch with each other. So we also created mm-hmm. a WeChat group. So it's similar to WhatsApp chat group, but with a limitation of 500 users. Mm-hmm. After that, we keep posting on the WeChat about what was happening in the English community. We translate some resources or blogs or articles. And uh, then more colleagues join the WeChat group and more, pe- more people subscribe to our WeChat official account. So then mm-hmm. maybe after one or two years, uh, I realized there is an online community. Uh, so that's the start of our network. The pandemic provided an opportunity for CLSM because most academic events moved online then, and we are an online community. At that time, we started to invite speakers to give talks about open science and reproducibility, and uh, those talks attracted lots of audience. I am really grateful to all speakers who were so generous to share their research and perspective through our network. Our steering committee also started to grow after that because many speakers found that uh, our network was doing a very meaningful thing. So they decided to join us and do it together. Without what other members of the steering committee, the network won't sustain and grow. Oh, wow. So it sounds like it started with a, like a workshop that was free. and Well, actually, it started with a paper and then it became a workshop. And then there was this official account that's like attracting a lot of interested people. Do you mind if I ask uh, how many people, how many active members who are currently in the network? And who are those people? Are they still mostly grad students or do you st- start to see like more senior members joining as well? Yeah, for the 
active members, I think maybe most of them are in WeChat group. We have now four WeChat group. Not all of them are full, so around 1,000 active members we can uh, discuss wow. through the WeChat group like in daily basis. So uh, we discuss what kinds of stuff. And we have uh, 24,000 subscribers of our WeChat official account. We have uh, relatively uh, larger uh, readership. Uh, most of oh, them wow. are graduate students at the very beginning. I think now still most of them are graduate students. But I do not have uh, the exact data because we never survey our users or subscribers' background uh, or uh, anyone who subscribed to our WeChat account. So I guess most of them are still graduate students because most of our content uh, is about research practices, skills, and uh, policies that relate to open science. So that's right. quite useful for them. But I also think that some some users have become independent PI or become mm-hmm. like a postdoc because we started like years ago and now as time passes. Right, right. Grass student will graduate at some point. At some point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one thing I I noticed when I was reading a paper is that um, it was mentioned throughout that Chinese Open Science Network puts strong emphasis on uh, being a grassroots-oriented organization. And I'm yeah. kind of curious whether this is a deliberate considerations or a compromise to practical considerations. I know you mentioned it just started, like naturally, just developed organically, but I'm also kind of curious, have you considered collaborating with like more established institutions or funding agencies in China or internationally? Why or why not? Yeah, I think it's more like a compromise to practical considerations. So you may know, uh, we, so all of our work uh, are done by volunteers. So which means that uh, we're always lack of enough people to do the the things we want to do. And then as establishing an official research center or an official organization needs a lot of paperwork in China. So currently, mm. we have no plan to do that because mainly because we do not have enough, enough time and resources to do that. Uh, also, we enjoy the freedom of being a grassroots network in China uh, because we do not have any like, official responsibility and uh, we are not paid by anyone, so we can choose what we want to share with others. We can choose which speaker will give us talk, what kind of tutorial we'll give online. So we're quite free, and uh, many times we delayed our events, and uh, we have no no guilty of it because <laughs> it's how it goes with a uh, grassroots network. I see. There's always a lot of, I guess string attached with the money that you get from those founders. So what kind of events do you organize being a grassroots organization that don't have money? Like, what do you guys do? So at the very beginning, we we mostly translate uh, different materials. For example, we found a a nice paper which might be useful for many people in the field. So we just translate it. At the very beginning, I think it's the members, for example, myself and others tra- translate it. Later, we start to uh, call for translators through our WeChat or official account. 
And then uh, we translate some methodology papers and some blogs that uh, collect open materials and something like that. After the COVID, I think we cannot do the workshop again. Uh, yeah, after 2016, we have another two workshop, like in-person workshop. But after COVID, we cannot do the un- the in-person workshop. So we start to some online events. So the first series of online events called Open Talks, basically we invite speakers who are working in open science or reproducibility to give us some uh, like online talk about their own research. For example, we, we invited Russell Podrug to introduce his ah. opinion about uh, <laughs> the open science culture. And we also invited uh, Michael Frank to talk about the My many, many Yes. <laughs> and we also invited Chris Chartiers to talk about uh, PSA, Psychological Science Accelerator, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's like a Chinese version of the Ride to Science Club, if you know that one. Uh, it's, a, it's an online talk series organized by UK researchers. Of course, we also invite Chinese speakers to share their own experience because um, then they can speak in Mandarin and it's easier for us. We also invite early career researchers in the later stage of the open talks to give talks so that they can increase their visibility. It's better for their career development. This is inspired by Weiji um, Ma uh, in New York University because he has a very famous series called Grow Up in Science. And uh, we also invited him to give a talk and uh, we also want to encourage ECRs. So we also invite ECRs who are willing to give a talk through our platform. That's one event we're organizing. The other is open tutorials. Because we are all like in our early career stage, we know that uh, learning from supervisor or learning from colleagues is not enough. We need a lot of uh, new techniques. This maybe is not easy to get if you are in China, but if you are in the US or in in the North America, I think it's easy because there are a lot of workshops happening um, all year round. But in China, the most of the the training are either by the commercial company or not maybe state of art. So we want to bring some new technical or methods or practices that can be useful for graduate students. So we start a series called Open Tutorial. We start with some program skills like how to use Docker, how to use GitHub, which is also quite relevant to reproducibility. And then we also invited other package developers to give their advices or give tutorials. That's our second online series. The third one, I think, is quite like the reproducibility. I'm not sure whether you had it. So basically, it's a, it's a general club. Uh, reproducibility is a local, in-person general club. I think it's firstly happening in Cambridge. Uh, so they have a group of people. Uh, most of them are young graduate students. So they start to read papers together, read papers about reproducibility and open science and discuss what they can learn and what's benefits for them. And then it starts to become a global organization or a network. 
because we in China, we most of us are using Mandarin, so we have difficulty to join the and reproducibility. So we started Open Minds. Actually, it's one of the first online events we organize. Um, at the first, we call it We Lost Weekly Learning Group of Open Science Team. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> a proper acronym. <laughs> yes, because at we that lost. time, we call it We Lost because we are quite confused. Me too. At that time, we don't know how should we continue because uh, in practice, we need to fulfill the criteria. For example, the number of publications and we need to get more papers on our CV so that we can survive in academia. On the other hand, we know that um, open science practices are the right thing to do, but we don't know how to do it. We know it might be uh, time-consuming and it might be harmful to our career development. And uh, so we are very confused. So we decided to, okay, we are lost, so we're not together. We found a long list of uh, papers related to reproducibility, and we started to read it one by one. And that's the first year. And then the second year, we, we decided to change the name because it's too pessimistic. We changed it to uh, Open Minds. We want to emphasize that uh, everyone inside, everyone attended the discussion are open-minded so that they are open to the papers, the idea in the papers that are challenging our current mindset. The second thing we want to emphasize is that we want to, by reading this paper, it can provide broader horizon to our audience, to our mm -hmm. attendees, so that like open their mind. So we call it open minds and we continue. And um, I think this is a quite successful event because we organized uh, very regularly. And um, I think from last year, we have, uh, we focus on theory crisis. So which is new development in the field. We're still reading papers related to theory building, theory crisis, and this topic. We also have um, other events, which is called the Open Plus. So basically, it's kind of a roundtable discussion. As you may know, there's many discussion about industry and uh, academia and the trade-off. So we also want to invite some colleagues who are like trained in psychology or cognitive neuroscience, but then they work in industry. We invite them back to have a round table to share their opinion about what they have thought, what they have experienced in industry. Because this kind of events is real, we only organize it uh, uh, like one or twice a year. So we call it Open Plus because we have uh, no better name for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. It's, 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 it sounds amazing. Yeah, like the the amount, the types, the variety of the events that such a grassroots network is organizing. I just want to say it's so impressive. And I think yeah. what you're not only promoting open science in China, but you're also addressing like a diversity issues in academia, especially in psychology, being such a North America. Well, let's just say USA dominated field because like most of the psychologists are trained in US and are working in the US. And I think it's just, it just makes me a day to know that there's a group of people in China without like a top down, like administration organization that's still doing those work. So yeah, I just want to say it's really, really, really impressive. Sorry. Just one no, correct no, no, thing. So our committee is not all in China. We are from all of the world. All of them are like from the Europe or I think there are also one member from the US. 
So we don't need our members to researchers who are in mainland China. We want to make the connection. So we, we hope that our community is uh, diverse enough. They are spreading mm -hmm. all over the world so that we have a strong collection with uh, research all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. Like being connected to the international community is, I think it's, it's just amazing. And I want to zoom out a little bit and ask about what are some challenges that researchers in developing countries face when practicing open science? I know this is something that you also discuss in a paper, which is about like, I guess, the lack of resources. And then there's also a related question. Um, uh, feel free to answer in whatever way that you feel comfortable with. What are some unique challenges that pertains to China specifically? Yeah, as for your first question, we didn't really think about it seriously until we, we need to write a paper. So during writing the paper, we reviewed some surveys from different countries. Then we found researchers from developing countries facing similar challenges when they want to engage in open science. As you said, most of us lack of enough funding and policy support to engage in open science. Um, so recently, I learned a new word called scientific mimicry. So basically, it means that developing countries are mimicry the institution from developed countries, which means that most developing countries, they also have the similar rewarding system or incentive system as developed countries. And maybe the disadvantage of this system is amplified in developing countries. For example, in China years ago, as Chris Chambers said, we are being counting, so we're counting the we're counting the number of publications of uh, researchers mm -hmm. has published. Now, of course, it's changing, which means that we incentivize the paper you published instead of practices mm -hmm. you have done, instead of the data you have shared, and we also lack policy support. I think many many uh, researchers in Europe or in the North America they feel the same way, but the situation is worse in developing countries. For example, yeah. in 2020, when I left Germany and back to China, Germany has a big fund, big grant to supporting matter research and reproducibility. So mm -hmm. they directly have a funding specifically for open science and matter research. Uh, this kind mm -hmm. of funding is real. And also the Einstein Fellowship, they start to reward this kind of uh, collaboration and mm -hmm. we do kind of funding. Yeah, that, that's the first and the most salient challenge faced by researchers in developing countries. The second one is lack of training. Our workshop about open science and reproducibility, I think is one of its kind, um, at least in public. I guess maybe some prestigious university or institution have their own in-house training about how to share data, how to make your such more reproducible so that it, it met the current standard of the international community. But in general, um, the training is real. For example, when I try to learn some new practices, I have to learn from the English materials. And um, there's few various blocks for training staff in Chinese. So that's why I always think that translation and giving talks in Chinese is important because many graduate students, especially from non elite universities, even they are eager to like, engage in open science, but mm -hmm. they have language barrier. So that's the another challenge. We also discussed this in our own community. Some members think that, why don't we just do everything in English? But me as um, students from rural China, I know that for many students who grow up in rural China, they, they start to learn English maybe at their middle school, like 12 years old. So they mm -hmm. actually have a difficult 
to read and write and listen to English, maybe even in their graduate school, even mm-hmm. in their master training. So I think lack of training and language barriers is quite a challenge. So in China, it's, mm-hmm. it's a challenge. I think maybe in other developing countries, it might also be a challenge because English mm-hmm. education also needs good education system. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that the other challenge is the lack of infrastructure. Sometimes you need to access to the international community. For example, a lot of videos, a lot of theories uh, are on YouTube. Uh, most mm-hmm. of the is happening on Twitter. And OSF is, uh, I think, is the default choice for many people to share the data. But uh, mm-hmm. in China, many of the research don't have the idea their existence. But in China, we start to have our own infrastructure, like the Science Data Bank and also the China Archive for preprint. Mm-hmm. But still, it do not have a good interface. So that's also part of the infrastructure. I think I this see. is also shared by other developing countries because I, I have read many papers complain about this, for, especially mm-hmm. for from Africa. Mm, I see, yeah. I see. Yeah, I I just want to say the language barrier thing is something that our podcast team, we think a lot about because I think it's such a privilege to be using English fluently because the majority of the scientific world and educational materials are in English. And something that we have thought about in our podcast team is that now we have the access to the transcripts. We purchased this service that can give us high quality transcripts. So maybe having some written material can help us broaden the reach of the audience. And in terms of the infrastructure, I think this is also a great point because I remember when I was back in China, I never thought about video platforms can become a source of education. And then I went into college in the United States and I realized, oh, actually, most of my math is learned through YouTube. And actually, most of my programming is also learned through YouTube. So it's such a missing opportunities and it's sad that that resources cannot be accessed more broadly. And hopefully with the advancement of a lot of translation technology, and I hope that technology can actually play the equalizer that many like tech roles have claimed them to be. Um, So one thing I want to ask is, I think one thing that in your paper that really struck me as something really interesting is that you mentioned that the sociocultural background of Chinese researchers might mitigate scientific reform because they tend to value harmony and modesty and conformity. But I wonder if you have any thoughts on how such sociocultural backgrounds did not become an advantage for, um, I guess, collaborative or team science research at the first place. Because, for example, in an alternative universe, I can imagine that the cultural background, the values of interdependence and social relationship might make Chinese researchers more prone to collaborations and data sharing. Yeah, I think that each culture, they maybe brings both advantage and disadvantage for promoting open science. For our culture, we, yes, we emphasize like harmony, modesty, and conformity. Uh, somehow we are like called collectivism, but uh, Still, in science, the open science practice are not widely adapted. I think the first reason is that the incentive system is quite inherited from Western tradition. So we emphasize the individual. For example, in our current system, because now I'm a faculty member in a university, 
So we emphasize who is the first author, who is the corresponding author. Even if the work is obviously a collaborative work, only two people will be recognized by the system, by the university's policy. And uh, actually, there is no trend of changing of this. And the people actually have to make a choice when they start a collaboration or a new study, right? They need to think about, okay, what can I get from it? Can I get the first author or the corresponding author? If cannot, then even if it is a really valuable project, but still cannot really benefit from it, then they will reconsider it. So actually, the university, the culture still value individual instead of team. So that's the problem. I think the other problem is that, for example, we may think that, okay, open science is a collective behavior. So it might spread faster in connectivism culture, but it depends. I mean, it depends who initiated it. Mm-hmm. You see these people like in the power, they want to initiate from like top-down fashion, then it might be faster. Yeah. But if it is in- initiated by someone at the bottom, like we want to have a bottom-up approach, then it is harder than in the US or European countries. The third issue, which is also very subtle, is the lack of cross-disciplinary conversations and collaborations. Openness and reproducibility is more like a research culture that applies to war fundamental research. But in China, war researchers are somehow segregated by their departments, and the crosstalk are fewer. The current incentive system, as I just mentioned, does not encourage collaborations and teamwork. So unlike Center for Open Science that initiated by psychologists and then grew to a cross-field center, our network has much less interactions with researchers from other fields. I think this also slows down the spread of, of open science practices. Yeah, I'm not sure I answered well your question. No, no, I think that, that that's actually really helpful for me to see the nuance in which the context of particular shape the way that certain cultural values played off. Um, I know that we're at almost at time and I definitely don't want to keep you too long, but I do want to end our conversation by asking if you have any suggestions for researchers in developing countries who are hoping to start an open science network like the one that you started. Yeah, we also discussed in paper that it's really hard to give specific suggestions because the situation might be very different from what we are facing in China with the online Chinese community. But overall, I think it is important to be bold enough to start trying to do something. At the very beginning, I did not decide to start a network, right? I just tried to make the voice of open science be heard by more people. Maybe it's just one more people, maybe 10 more people. I don't care. Just make it be heard by a bit more people so that it will benefit those people who had this voice, right? And then as more people start to join us, we can uh, do many interesting things together, like the open series events. So I think uh, it's very important to be bold enough and be optimistic. If you think open science is the right thing, then you just uh, tell more people it is the right thing. And I think many of them, not all of them, will be convinced by you. And uh, a few of them will join you, but then it should be enough. But I also want to emphasize that the international community is really helpful and encouraging. We get a lot of um, 
encouragement from the international community. Invite speakers from like the US or Europe. They are always very uh, generous at that time. So I think keeping in touch with the international community was very important. We have other tips which actually is gained during the development of our network. But I think being bold and being connected is the first, maybe the most important two tips. <laughs> At least in my awesome. opinion. Awesome. Um, on that note, I would like to thank you again for joining on the show with me today. And if any interested listener want to learn more about this, they'll be able to find the link to the preprint on this paper in the show notes. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. Or if you have any other suggestion for future guests or topics for the podcast, you can click on the link to the survey attached in the show note or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.